0: good morning everybody turn with me in your bibles or the matthew journals that we've provided for you to use to matthew chapter eight um we had some fiddling this morning did we not did you know so deborah who often sings with us uh deborah and that was her husband tom um, who's a volunteer at the at the church here as well and uh, they used to be the conwisher next door neighbors i'm just saying like that's something and then it got a little too much and they had to move a little further away. But that's fine. It's fine now. Hey, um, so, but we, we have such a gifted congregation and musicians and people who, who lead us. It's, it's a treasure to get to be a part of for the gift of worship together. Hey, um, while you're turning to Matthew chapter 8, there was a big survey that was done, sponsored primarily by the social media giant LinkedIn, and uh, they asked this question. The question that they posed was, if you could go back and have a conversation with your 20-year-old self, what advice would you give? And so what I want to do is begin today's service by having you turn to a person next to you. For the students, this is kind of an awkward moment because you're not 20 yet, but just kind of use your imagination. So turn to somebody, what kind of advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Ready, set, go. There was a guy at the the first service today who very clearly just shouted out, buy Apple stock. That was how, that's how he would talk to his 20-year-old self. Um, well they, they actually did thousands and thousands and thousands of answers of these and then kind of coalesced them and kind of you know, group them together into like answers. And by far and away the largest category, which they put with this umbrella above it, was the advice that action beats deliberation. And that's kind of a fancy phrase, so let me, let me say what that means. Is that when we're 20 years old, we're still trying to figure out kind of who we are, and what do we want to do with our lives, and who do we want to do life with, in terms of friendships and soulmate and that kind of thing. And a lot of the times the trap that we can fall into is that we think we have to have all of that figured out before we take a step. And that the most consistent advice that would be would be to go back and say, hey, hey, you don't need to have it all figured out. You just need to keep taking the right kinds of risks. You just need to keep taking those steps and to learn iteratively from taking those steps and to recalibrate and to keep moving your life in the right direction. And that's not just good advice for somebody who's trying to grow up. That's really good advice for us spiritually that action beats deliberation. It has been said that Presbyterians are a kind of people who are educated beyond our level of obedience. And what that means is, is that as Presbyterians, we like to go to the classroom and we like to go to the study and we like to figure things out theologically and biblically But that doesn't necessarily change us from the inside out and lead us to an activated life. And so we, in the spiritual family of faith, we like to deliberate. We don't necessarily like to act. But action beats deliberation. And what we're about to see is how Jesus holds together both word and action. And in fact, you see this, and we're going to just, it's one of the larger trends that we're going to notice in the book of Matthew, that Jesus will teach for a while, and then he will minister for a while, and then he will go back and he will teach some more, and he will minister some more. And what we've seen recently in our Matthew journey, walking chapter by chapter through this throughout the course of this year, in chapters 5 through 7, we saw Jesus explaining and giving the Sermon on the Mount. And this is basically Jesus expounding on the Ten Commandments. And I had never seen this before, but this year I counted and noticed in a commentary that picked this up as well, that in Matthew's chapters 8 and 9, that there are 10 different miracles, that there are 10 healings. In other words, what's happening in Matthew 5 through 7 is Jesus is the new Moses who's re-giving the law, And that Jesus is also the new Moses in helping to liberate us. You know, remember that contest of the ten plagues that takes place in Exodus? Jesus is doing that again and anew over the contest of who is in charge. But instead of it being ten different forms of pestilence and disease, it is ten miracles of healing and restoration. And so Jesus is the new Moses leading us through this. And the word that kind of holds a lot of what happens in this portion of the Bible together is a word that comes from the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that after Jesus had finished teaching these things or saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had what? Authority. By the time you get to the end of the book of Matthew, it is all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so Jesus taught them in such a way in the Sermon on the Mount of like, hey, he's not an ordinary teacher. He is teaching with a different kind of authority. But Jesus doesn't stay on the mountainside. He enters back down into the valley and into the lake shore in order to minister to the people. And in doing that ministry, he is putting into action what he has already preached. And so what we see from Jesus is that he not only has the authority to be able to help us to understand God's word, God's message to us, he also has the authority to execute and to help to live that out, to embody it. And so what we're about to enter into is a period of time over the course of almost all the way up to the last week of Jesus's life, it will be teaching and miracles and miracles and teaching and back and forth between those two things, word and action, action and word word and action. It's going to go back and forth. And we're about to see over the course of his ministry a whole lot of miracles. And I think I need to level set what a miracle is to make sure that you don't misunderstand when we see a miracle. Now get this from Tom Wright. Tom Wright says that miracles are not interruptions of the natural order. They are the signposts of the new order or the new creation. In other words, if you think of a miracle as kind of like a glorified parlor trick or magic trick, if you think of a miracle as kind of like a commercial break in the brokenness and the fallenness of our world, where Jesus is walking around and he's like, oh, I really feel sorry for this guy. And so I think I'll do a miracle. That's not what's going on. What's happening is Jesus has announced and is launching the ministry that continues to unfold of the reign of God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in the heavens. And that there are signposts of what that kingdom is like. When we live in the kingdom of Christ, we get to see healing, we get to see restoration, where our brokenness and our tears and our disease are taken away. And so miracles are not these little interruptions. They are these signposts pointing us to the reality that is already here and yet is coming at the same time. And so Jesus is on the mountain, and he preaches... And now he enters into our lives to minister to us, and we're about to see two stories. One of the other things that we have a tendency to do, we don't tend to read the Bible systematically like what we're doing right now in church together, and I hope you're on this journey. I hope you've gotten one of these journals and you're doing it with us. We don't tend to read the Bible systematically and in continuity, and we don't tend to read stories together. We tend to read them in isolation. And what we're about to do is to put two stories together and we will see in the juxtaposition of those two stories things that we wouldn't see if we were just looking at them alone. Matthew chapter 8, starting in the first verse. When Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. And when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority and with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And so with Jesus entering into the lives of the people to minister them, he's not just proclaiming a word, he is showing the action of the gospel. And that changes the way that we can even reorient and live our lives. So there's four observations I want you to notice out of these two stories today. And that is this, because of Jesus first, we can approach with confidence, because I don't know if you're aware of the context of these two individuals, there is no way that these two people should be approaching Jesus. With specifically the leper, in that society at that time, if you were a leper, you were not allowed to be near anyone. You were required to be at least six feet distance from anybody. And if you were in public and someone approached you, you had to step out of the way, out of the road, and yell, unclean, unclean, just to make sure that they didn't accidentally come into contact with you. But there was something about this Jesus that this leper looks at him and has the audacity and the courage and the confidence to approach and to fall at Jesus' feet. In the same way, but in a different vein, we have this Roman centurion. He is a foreign pagan Roman occupier for a society that is held under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And he is someone with great authority, a centurion like the word century means that he has at least a hundred soldiers under his command. So he is a manager of the occupying force that's taking place in that society. And as a rabbi, Jesus would never have been allowed to come into contact with an unclean leper, nor would he have had any contact with a Roman foreign occupier. And yet, there's something about this Jesus that this Roman soldier approaches him, and he doesn't say that he's unclean, but he does admit, I am unworthy. And he brings his request before Jesus. What is it that could possibly allow somebody who is so diseased and somebody who is so far away in authority to both find what their soul longs for in this one person? There's a woman by the name of Eleanor who has served as a missionary in Haiti for a long time. Haiti is one of the poorest countries in the world. And as a part of her mission, what she has done is she has sat with the people and listened to their prayers and recorded those prayers. I want to share with you some of the prayers of some of the poorest people. These are people who are on the lowest rung of one of the lowest countries in the world. And here are some of their prayers. Lord, all my life I have been just a weed. I became a flower. I am young and I want to grow and be cultivated so that I can become more beautiful. Lord, in Christ we are a grain of corn in a clear bottle. Satan comes like a chicken and pecks for the corn but never reaches it. Have you ever prayed that prayer? (laughs) Lord, how glad we are that we don't hold you. You hold us. And my favorite, Lord, don't let us put a load of trouble in a basket on our head. Help us to put them on Jesus's head and then we won't have headaches. (laughs) Here are people who have no standing. Here are people who have no intrinsic value by the world's standards. And they come before the God of the universe to offer their prayers. You see, the confidence that we have in Christ is a trust, not in our worth, but in His worth. And in the worthiness that He imparts to us. And so because of Jesus, because of the gospel, you can approach Him with confidence regardless of where you are in society regardless of how you feel about yourself and because of jesus you also can speak with candor you can be honest one of the most remarkable things about the dialogue if you really do enter into the original context of this text is again you have this leper who shouldn't even be having You know, a conversation with Jesus, be close to him in any way, but the manner in which he speaks to Jesus, he comes and he's like, Lord, if you will it, if you want it, if you desire it, you can make me clean. Who talks to somebody like that? In the same way, when the centurion comes to Jesus, he's like, Lord, my servant is suffering terribly. There's no beating around the bush here, there's no artificial harmony. And Jesus is even honest in this discourse when he turns to his friends and he says, I I tell you, I've never seen faith like this in Israel. What is it about the nature of Jesus' presence and his action that enables us to speak freely and candidly? And why doesn't that happen more? Let me see if I can illustrate with a guy by the name of Dan Ariely, who's a behavioral economist. And one of his early kind of long-standing practices in research, what had to do with honesty. In fact, he published a book that was called The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. And with this research, he did a ton of work with college students. Why college students? Because they're cheaper to work with than grown adults. They're desperate for a little bit of money to participate in the survey. And he did this not just in the United States, but in different countries at different universities with different socioeconomic and cultural assumptions. He worked with 30,000 college students and had them take a test. And on that test, they were to fill it out. It wasn't that long of a test, but as they were to take that test, after the test was done, they revealed the answers and the people were to grade their own papers and then they were to come forward and they were to put their, their sheet so that other people, they couldn't walk out with it, and other people wouldn't get ruined by having them having the answers to the test. They would put it in what appeared to be a shredding machine. But it wasn't really a shredder, it was a scanner. And then they were to tell the person running the survey what their score was on the way out. So they were able to match together What they said and thought was shredded was the score on their test and what they actually got. 18,000 out of 30,000 college students lied on the score that they got. Now, very few of them lied all the way. I got them all right. But more than half of the people lied by saying that their score was just a little better than what it really was. Here's what Dan Ariely said after all of his research. Dishonesty is all about the small acts we can take and then think, no, this is not real cheating. What we find is that we are basically trying to balance feeling good about ourselves. Why am I taking you on this little sojourn into social science? The reason I'm taking you in here is because you need to understand that as a society, as we distance ourselves further from the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ, have you noticed at the same time how truth has come under assault? That now the truth is far more malleable in our world? The reason that is, is because we have to swim upstream. Dishonesty, not telling the truth, isn't really the promise itself, isn't the problem itself. It is the symptom to the larger problem of we're trying to find a place to stand where we understand that we're okay. The only place where you and I will be okay, the only place where our soul finds its worth is in the person in the work of Jesus Christ. And so if we don't have that as an anchor we are constantly trying to justify ourselves and to tell ourselves that we are okay and yet we can only find that true satisfaction where our soul is at peace when we actually accept that work of jesus christ on our behalf and so what happens is is that jesus lives out the gospel And in doing so, then we have the capacity to be able to speak freely, to speak candidly. We can be on the lower rung of the ladder, and if we have the good news of Jesus Christ, we can speak to somebody who's above us, and we can speak plainly and speak directly. We can be higher up on the social status ladder, and we will not use that to lord it over to someone else. We will be able to talk, speak directly and candidly with other people. Honesty will only be found with the gospel. Now I could, are you getting this? I could keep talking about it, but I have two more points. Are you tracking with this? Because this part's really important. The problem that we have with the truth today is a problem in the acceptance of the gospel. It is not a problem with truth itself. We have to get to the root. And so because of Jesus, we can approach with confidence. Because of Jesus, we can speak with candor, with honesty. Because of Jesus, we can receive with mercy. Do not miss the most remarkable feature of this story, that this leper comes and approaches Jesus, and Jesus could have healed him by just saying, your sins are forgiven, I heal you, whatever thing that Jesus wanted to say. But that's not what Jesus does. That even more radical than the leper approaching Jesus is Jesus' willing to reach out with his hand and to touch the leper. We see from the story with the Roman centurion that Jesus has the authority. He has the power just with a word to heal someone. Jesus doesn't have to touch him. He chooses to touch him. And in that society, in that day and age, what that would mean, according to the convention of the day, is that there's this unclean leper that Jesus touches and that the unclean will make the clean thing unclean. But in Jesus' kingdom that is breaking into this world, it's not like that. The contamination doesn't contaminate Jesus. Jesus, as the clean one, makes the unclean clean. Are you tracking with that? It's the very opposite. Instead of making us, instead of us making Jesus unclean, Jesus makes us clean. And I also don't want you to miss here that the mercy that is available in these encounters with the soldier and the individual. Did you notice that the the leper comes with a concern for himself, the soldier comes with a concern for another, And Jesus wants to minister to both. Never, ever, ever underestimate the power of an intercessory prayer. We don't know anything about the faith of the servant of the centurion. Here's what we do know. We do know that he brought, that the soldier brought that to Jesus and Jesus could do something about it. And so if you're here today and you have a, a child, a grandchild, a coworker, a friend, a neighbor, a loved one, and they're suffering terribly like the one is in the centurion soldier story. Bring that concern to Jesus. And don't think that because it's far away or because you're not he, Jesus can heal and love and give mercy in surprising ways. And so because of jesus we can approach with confidence we can speak with candor we can receive with mercy and we can join in community we can join in community the most remarkable feature of this story is not the healing itself the most remarkable feature is that in addition to physically healing jesus Is pulling and knitting the community back together from its brokenness. A leper who's ostracized, who can't be with his family, with his village, with his friends, Jesus tells him, go and show yourself to the priest. Why does Jesus make this strange request? Because the only way for that leper to be able to go back home, or to be in the village, or to be together with the people that he knows and loves, The only way for that to happen was for the priest to provide the blessing. And he tells him, don't forget to bring your thank offering. Don't forget to bring your gift as a response to what God has done for you. In other words, what is happening in this moment is that Jesus is weaving the leper's life back into the fabric of the community together. And the same thing is true with the Roman soldier in the sense of here is a servant who can no longer work, who can no longer do what he wants to do, feel called to do, to be with people because he is suffering terribly. And when Jesus heals him, he is restoring the dignity of the work of being able to live his life once again. And so Jesus is reaching across different sectors of society, and he's pulling those pieces of the frayed edges back together. It's a good thing that our society is so unified today that we don't need that kind of work, right? Do you ever read the uh, Edelman Trust Barometer or is this a nerd alert and I'm the only one who does this? There's a report that comes out. It's a very detailed report um, and I was amazed by what I saw this year from last year's report. This is under a section that they did where they studied how ideology has become identity. Don't miss this. If a person strongly disagreed with me or my point of view, I would, first of all, help them if they were in need, 30%. If you disagree with somebody, you're 30% likely to help them. If I disagree with somebody or my point of view, I am 20% likely to be willing to live in their neighborhood. If I disagree with you strongly about something, I am 20% likely to be willing to be your coworker. Don't miss this. In other words, in the opposite, 80% of us are not willing to work with somebody that we disagree with. 80% of us are not willing to live in the same neighborhood with people that we disagree with. That 70% of us are unwilling to help someone in need if we know that we disagree with them. And so, my friends, if you're a part of that supermajority in those statistics, I need you to understand that you are not going to like heaven. (laughs) You're just not. Because what Jesus is doing in the heavenly restoration is he is pulling all of these things back together. There's a woman by the name of Sarah who moved to Dallas and she was kind of running ragged, trying to live her life in such a way where she's chasing the, the flashiest, latest object and desire. And she hit midlife and she just started to reflect what what are those places in my life where I truly feel alive? So she went to her dad, who's a woodworker, and she said, Dad, would you be willing to make me a table? that could seat 20 people that i could put in our backyard outside. And her dad said, "Sure, but what why do you want a table that big?" And she said, "2000 years ago a man said that the most important thing in life was to love our neighbor. And i want to do that. She said, "I have a dream to serve 500 people at a table in my backyard. And so her father made the table. This is the table. They put it in the backyard. They hung some lights from the oak tree. And in the course of a year, she hosted over 500 people at her table. By the time I read the article, she had hosted over 3,000 people at her table. And that her dream had shifted to now she wants people to be able to order one of those tables in every state in the country with the express purpose that at those tables that her father has made, that people will be gathering in Jesus's name to love their neighbor. Do you see what she's doing? I'm not telling you that a Bible study is bad. I'm a preacher, I love Bible studies. But sometimes we need to stop deliberating and we need to start acting. And you know enough to do what you can. So I wanna put this slide back up. Because of the gospel, because of Jesus, what do you need to do to approach with confidence, to speak with candor, to receive with mercy, to join in community? What's a step that you could take? It'd be really easy to leave the sanctuary and be inspired by what we've learned in the text and to make the mistake that we need to tell our 20-year-old selves in faith that action beats deliberation. So what are you going to do? Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, forgive us for our inaction, for the fact that we are so educated beyond our levels of obedience. Will you unite within our hearts both your word as well as the willingness to put it into practice? Thank you that the authority that you had from the Father is something that you share with us and that our own lives can be signposts, little miracles of the kingdom breaking into this world. We thank you that because of your Son and our Savior, we can be confident even when we're unclean and unworthy, that you love nothing more than to hear our simple prayers. God, I pray that you will give us a new kind of candor that comes from the security of the gospel in a world where we're desperately trying to justify ourselves. Help us to speak the truth in love. God, help us to receive the compassion that you alone can give. I pray that you will touch the person that needs to be touched. I pray that you will give a word of healing and of joy to someone who needs it. We pray for ourselves as well as for others. And Lord, help us to to come to church and to bring our gifts and to ask for healing and get the heavenly banquet table thrown in. May the trust barometer of our lives go up way higher than they are right now as we are willing to sit at neighbor's table. Move us, God. Not by our worth, but by your faithfulness. We pray in Jesus' name.